chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we're going to put in at verse 15. And so that you don't laugh at me when I get there, we're not going to read the entire genealogy. However, I would encourage you to read it as a Father's Day devotional later on (laughs) this afternoon. And I will say that there are some great boy names in this. Uh, uh, My favorite, well, I don't know, they're like Mathathiah or Maath in verse 26. That would be a great boy's name, Maath. Or uh, where was the, Opelig. Uh huh. Uh, just some real good ones. Jared, I mean, that's a common one, but Jorim. How's that? Sounds like something on Superman's planet. So, anyway, just uh, pay attention to that. So, let's read Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And then when we get to the genealogy, we're going to skip to verse 38. Follow along. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people, But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we've gathered around your word, and we expect, Lord, great things to take place as we open it, and as we read it, and as we study it. And as we'll see this morning, Lord, the the thing that we want most is to know that we've been in your presence, in the presence of Jesus Christ, that we've, though we see through a glass darkly and look forward to the time when we will see you face to face, it doesn't mean that we can't see you in a beautiful and profound way as we have come here this day. So bless our time, Lord, quiet our hearts, settle our minds. May all of our focus and attention be on you. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. What do you expect when you come to church? Your expectation will often determine whether or not a particular church service is meaningful to you. In our text we read, the people were in expectation. John the Baptist had been telling them that Jesus was coming. It was their constant expectation that Jesus would be present among them. We should have the same expectation. In two familiar passages, Jesus himself indicated that our expectation should be that he would be present among us. 
In a passage describing the power and the authority present in meetings of his church, Jesus said, and I quote, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And then in the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Lord described himself by saying he was walking in the midst of the church as it assembled together. We should expect Jesus to be present among us. We should expect him to make his presence known. The people listening to John the Baptist were in expectation. As a result, two things happened. Hearts were opened and heaven was opened. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, when you're expecting Jesus to come, hearts are opened. And number two, when you're expecting Jesus to come, heaven is opened. First of all, let's take a look in verses 15 through 20. When you're expecting Jesus to come, hearts are open. Jesus is God. He is therefore omnipresent, present everywhere at once. I understand that when we gather, we don't need to figure out how to get him to come to church. He's already there. He's already here. Still, it was Jesus who reminded us that he would be present among us in a special way when we gathered together. We need this reminding. Unless we meet Jesus in our service, none of our other expectations will be met. If we meet Jesus in our service, all of our expectations will be met. We want to glean a few insights from the scene at the Jordan River where John was baptizing. We can identify several factors that contribute to a sense of expectation. The first thing that contributes to a sense of expectation is preaching about Jesus. In verse 15, it says, now as the people were in expectation. Well, previously, we learned that John considered himself nothing more than, he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. His strong preaching about Jesus and nothing else had built a sense of expectation in the hearts of the people that the Lord was going to be present with them. Jesus should always be the main subject running through all of our messages. It seems like that would be easy, but it's really all too easy to get away from that. You can do whole messages in the Bible and never even use the name Jesus, never even really talk about Jesus Christ. A lot of preaching sounds biblical, but it ignores the nature and character of God, for example. Let's just focus on that for just a minute. Let's say you come into church, and probably you come in a lot of times burdened and carrying just the weight of the world on your shoulder. Something terrible has happened or is happening or there's a trial or a struggle or a difficulty in your life and you're just weary and bent and you come in and, and you know that somewhere in God's word, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so you're, you're waiting for that lifting of that burden and that yoking with Jesus that will strengthen you so that you know he's the one that's leading and guiding and walking. And instead, you get some kind of a message about what a failure you are. The church is going down the tubes. It's, it's swirling in the toilet. It's just, unless you give us some more money, unless you pray a little bit more, unless you volunteer, unless you do something, the entire universe of God is about to be destroyed. Okay, I'll sign up. 
and then you crawl out because you're, you've got all the more burden. God, now God has put some burdens. You thought you had burdens before, man. You didn't know anything until you came to church. Well, it shouldn't be that way. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so, you know, I can't guarantee it's going to happen every week, but the goal should be to have people go out a little bit lighter than they came in. Not necessarily lighthearted, not as if everything is fun and fluff, but realizing that there is a God, that he cares for you, that you are yoked together with him. And he's a great yoke fellow because he'll lead and guide and direct and all you have to do is kind of follow along in his leading and there's no burden when you're yoked with Jesus Christ. How could, what is it that he can't carry? You know, you remember these pictures of, is it Atlas who has the world on his shoulders, you know, and these, that's the pose, isn't it? Man, Jesus, if you're yoked with Jesus, I mean, there's nothing you can't pile on him that he can't handle. And so you're free. You're free of those kinds of things, and that's what should take place. Or maybe you come to church and you're told something, uh, you know, you're, you're being taught some doctrine that just doesn't sound like the nature and character of God. Maybe you're being told that, that God doesn't love everybody, that he only loves a, a chosen group of people and that everybody else is going to die and go to hell. There's nothing that they can do about that. Oh, well. Well, that's not the nature of God. That's not the character of God. That's not anything that I want to listen to. What kind of love is that? That's not Jesus as he's revealed in the Scripture. That's not Jesus saying, whosoever will come to me, seeking to save the lost and all. And so we want to be careful about this. We want to preach about Jesus. And, And when we study God's Word, this is the written Word of God, it speaks of the living Word of God, and that would be Jesus Christ. God most perfectly revealed Himself through Jesus. He is the embodiment of the written Word, and so it's Him that we want to talk about. Next, pointing to Jesus contributes to a sense of expectation. Verse 15 again, now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. John had a remarkable sense of his own uh, ministry and duty. And I just suggest this to you to tuck away somewhere in the back of your mind that you need to get with God and figure out what it is He wants you to be doing in your life. It doesn't have to be a grand thing, as we'll see later on. What is it that God wants you to focus on? We move in a lot of different directions and dimensions sometimes as Christians and as people. We get our irons in a lot of different fires and however you want to put it. John, he was... He knew that he was sent to talk about Jesus and to baptize people at the Jordan River, and that is all that he was going to do. That was it. He was focused in. He was dialed in. He was concentrated on that. I don't know that maybe he had offers to go to other cities and baptize there. I mean, everybody was coming there. I mean, this was a revival. This was multitudes. I'll tell you right now, if you had multitudes of people coming to this church, I'd be invited to go somewhere and, and write a book the multitude church or something, you know, and, and how did you do it, you know, and, and you'd be on the speaking tour and all of that kind of stuff. Not John. John, hey, what are you talking about? I baptize with water. I talk about the Messiah. That's all that I do. I've been out in the desert wearing weird clothes, eating locusts and honey. This is what I do. 
Don't distract me from what I'm doing. And a lot of us need to get back to what it is God has called us to do. And it's a simple thing. So often maybe it's just being a, a wife or a mother or a husband or a father. Happy Father's Day. See, I, you know, I, this is the, actually the Father's Day message. But, uh, and, and we're off doing all of these other things. We're neglecting the main things. Now, we should cut these folks some slack. We have a lot more revelation about Jesus than these people had, and we are often confused. And so when you think, how could they think John was Jesus? Well, you and I are confused. I'm confused. I I get confused about things in God's Word. And so, you know, they they were just excited about the ministry, and, and they didn't have everything that we have. And so they thought, well, maybe it's John. Well, now, often a disciple would become the servant of his teacher. Even a disciple, though, would not stoop to taking off the sandals of his teacher. This was something that was never done. It, it was like a, became like a byword or a, a kind of a saying among the Jews, you know, about identifying somebody in the lowest possible position would be a person who would unloose the sandal strap. But John said that the difference between him and Jesus was so great, he was not even worthy to be considered for that task. It wasn't that it, it was demeaning to do it and that he was willing to do it. It's that he wasn't even worthy to be considered to do it. He was even less worthy than that. Well, this is fantastic. John pointed away from himself and at Jesus. In another gospel, he says, I must decrease that he might increase. That's your life, by the way, as a Christian, that whoever it is, that Gene Pensiero would decrease all this fantastic personality that I have and, and all this exuberant charisma and everything that makes me the great person that I am. <laughs> that that would decrease and that Jesus would increase. Seriously, though, so that people, when they leave a, a Bible study, they would think not about me at all. Not that you would, but I mean, except in a bad way. But... Um, <laughs> That, that it would just have been Jesus that they were pointed to. And that's what John was all about. Now, pointing at Jesus means losing yourself. You can have no ambition, no attitude, no activity in your life that would be an obstacle or a hindrance to people seeing Jesus as you are serving him. Next, emphasizing the power of Jesus contributes to a sense of expectation. Verse 16. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John was a servant whose only task was to baptize with water. The Lord was the one mightier that they should focus upon. Where is the emphasis in these verses? Is it on the power of the Holy Spirit Or is it on the power of Jesus? Well, if you answer Jesus, you're right. Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit, and so the emphasis is on Him and what He's going to do. What is this particular baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, there's a lot of different explanations that are given, and and some of them are valid and some of them are not. And I'm not saying that the one I'm going to give you is the only possible one, but I think it's the best one. A lot of times, if you want to know what the Scripture is teaching, you you can just read a couple of verses more, uh, and it'll tell you what it means. And so here it says that Jesus is going to come. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
And the people are thinking, ooh, what's that? And so then John gives them an illustration of what he's talking about. In verse 17, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John used an agricultural image to explain Jesus' twofold baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. A farmer took a large fork-shaped shovel and tossed grain into the air. The heavy grain fell to the threshing floor to be gathered. The lighter chaff flew away in the breeze and had to be swept up, and then it was burned. Just so, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire by dividing people into two groups, those who receive Him and are given His Holy Spirit to indwell them, and those who reject Him and will be burning forever in the fire of hell. This is what I believe the baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit and fire means in this text. Now, as you move through the Bible, there's other baptisms with the Holy Spirit and fillings with the Holy Spirit. We get confused at the terminology because we think everything has to match just exactly. Not true. This is defined for you. This baptism with fire is Jesus coming with power to offer salvation to men and women and they will be then divided into those two groups. If you are preaching Jesus and pointing to Jesus, people will inevitably be confronted with His power to save them for eternity, and they will understand the awful alternative. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And so a lot of people say, well, you know, why do you talk about hell and isn't kind of negative? It's way beyond negative. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know we, we joke around about preachers being hellfire and brimstone and damnation preachers. Well, Jesus was the first. He made it clear that he had the power to save. And he made it clear that everyone is already condemned. He, he didn't come to condemn anyone. They were already condemned, and he came to save them. And those who receive that message are baptized by the Holy Spirit in the sense that they are saved, indwelt by the Spirit, put into the body of Christ, saved forever. But those who reject that message, well, they're going to be burned with fire. There's only one other possible destination when it's all said and done. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. And God doesn't send anybody there. People decide they, they're going there because they reject Jesus Christ. And so you just need to know that this morning. If you're not a Christian, you're already condemned, the Bible says. You're, you're a sinner. There's no hope for you apart from Jesus Christ. But the good news is he died and rose again to save you, and you don't have to go to hell. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. They're not even going to rule there. They're not even going to whip you or, you know, all these ideas. They're going to suffer there. And so is everyone else who rejects Jesus Christ because there's no place else for them in the new heaven and the new earth. And so you need to know that. You need to know that you're lost before you can be saved. I'm smiling because, can I, can I share this with you? Yeah, just time out from the message. They turned my clock upside down up there. So isn't that cute or what? And I've been looking at it thinking, so actually I've got an hour and a half that's pretty cute. I appreciate that. 
crazy coots around here, I'll tell you. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people, verse 18. When talking to believers, you should emphasize Jesus' power to save them. They're already saved for eternity, but they need to go on experiencing the benefits and blessings of their salvation. And so we want to talk about what God has done for us and about how His grace is sufficient for all of our circumstances and all of our possible needs. And, and that he is the power that we want to appeal to. Now, oftentimes his strength is made perfect in our weakness. We don't like that, but it's the way of Christianity. It's the way of Christ. And so we preach about Jesus. And so people come in, I have, man, I, I can't take it anymore. I, I'm just about ready to fail. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What are you talking about? This is exactly where God wants you to be because when you are at the end of your strength and you're really not there yet because you're still thinking that you don't have any strength, but meaning that you think you do. What? Well, anyway, just forget that. But if you, the minute you get to the end of your strength, then God empowers you. When I am weak, then I am strong, Paul said. And, and so that's the deal. Next, you emphasize the purity of Jesus, and that contributes to a sense of expectation. It says in verse 19, But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. Herodias had been married to Herod's half-brother, a guy named Philip. She was thus Herod's wife, his sister-in-law, and his niece all at the same time. Not good. There were many other evils which Herod had done. John was able to rebuke Herod because he kept himself in a place of purity in his walk with God. Your sense of expectation of meeting with Jesus will be greatly hindered if you are ignoring his commands and demands for personal purity in your daily life. You know, if you're walking with sin in your life, you're going to be more like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When God comes to have fellowship with you, you're going to be hiding behind some fig leaf. God will be calling to you. It's not that God, you know, we always think God's cutting us off. He's got lightning bolts, you know, coming and, and all this kind of thing. God still comes to have fellowship with you, but your heart has changed. Your heart is hard. You know that you're in sin and you want to hide from God. And God, He continues to call to you, doesn't He? Gene, where are you? What, where, where'd you go? And he draws out your sin so that he can restore fellowship with you. And so we want to emphasize the purity. And then finally, we learn from John to expect persecution. Also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. Herod imprisoned John and ultimately would have John beheaded. Now, this is a great study in and of itself. Herod had a lot of evil things he did. We don't know all of them. One of them was this impure marriage that he had, but there were a lot of other weird things. But God says, above all of them, the worst thing that Herod did, he imprisoned John. And that tells us that God is preeminently aware of and concerned for his children. And you say, well, wait a minute, time out. How come he lets them be imprisoned and beheaded then? Well, that's just this life. Who cares? about that. Our light affliction is but for a moment. It works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God never said that you weren't going to have trouble. Read Hebrews chapter 11 
talks about men and women of faith, and the first half of it, man, fantastic, stop the mouths of lions like Daniel, and, and uh, you know, nature is ruled by these people. And then all of a sudden, there's a shift in the middle of a verse that talks about being beheaded and hiding in the caves of the earth and being persecuted. You say, ooh, I'm, I'm a first half of a Hebrews 11 Christian. That could be the name of our church, you know, Hebrews 11a fellowship, you know. <laughs> People down the street are the Hebrews 11b fellowship, you know, and, and uh, we don't want that. And, and so that's not the issue. God is aware of what was happening with John, and his, his heart was touched by it, but it was part of his plan that John would be imprisoned and beheaded. And if that sounds cruel to you, you, you just don't understand heaven. You don't understand eternity. This is a world of suffering and adversity and affliction, and it's because of sin. It's my fault. It's your fault. It's ultimately Adam's fault our Father. God, people say, why doesn't God do something about what's going on in the world? You mean like sending His own Son to die on the cross so that people could be saved? Like becoming a man? Yeah, something like that. Okay, you mean like, you know, destroying all the evil and creating a new heaven and a new earth so that none of that will ever happen? Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds good. So why doesn't He do that? Well, you're probably not saved yet. You want, to, you want him to do that right now? I'll get him on my cell phone. No, no, wait, you know? And, and so that's, that's what's really going on here. And so we need to expect persecution. Otherwise, we're not going to sense and expect the presence of God in what we're going through. Don McClure, who's a Calvary Chapel pastor I respect, has had a lot of trials in his life. He uh, has an insight that he says that usually a Christian has two trials with every trial. The trial itself, whatever it might be, and then your personal struggle with the trial, trying to figure out why you're in it and why God is allowing it. And that's why the writers of the New Testament say, don't think it's a strange thing when bad things happen. Consider it all joy. Don't make another trial out of the trial itself. Embrace the situation and say, well, Lord, I expect your presence in this trial. If you want me to be sick, if you've allowed this affliction, then in my weakness, you're going to be made strong, and I expect to know some things about you that I couldn't know any other way, and so let's get it on. Let's do it. What is it you're going to show me? Come on. Make me, mature me, grow me up in you. I'm ready. I got my Bible open in front of me. Not moving until you show me some things. Instead, if you're like me, it's... Instead of my Bible, I got a book of, you know, alphabetized of if you're in this particular affliction, look here, you know, and stuff, and, and it's crazy. And so we make the trial, we make up our own trial out of the trial. And then we feel, oh, God's abandoned me. I don't sense God's presence. Well, sure, you don't want God's presence in the trial. That's the problem. You really don't want to be in the trial, so you don't want His presence in the trial. Your whole mind is geared to getting away from it. You want to keep God at a distance. You know, there are some things that God can only teach you through struggle and suffering. No one is very deep or mature who hasn't suffered in some way. It's just, it's just not possible. And those who have met suffering with the Lord are like deep wells of still water. You want to be around them, and they're content with their life. Jesus is everywhere present, but He has promised to manifest His presence and to make Himself known in our meetings. How do we know if we've met with the Lord? 
Good question, valid question. Well, often the presence of God is gauged according to how many or how wild the manifestations of His Spirit were in a meeting. That's one way people have adopted of saying, okay, God has been present in our midst. We saw that He was present because, you know, Brother Gene got up from his chair and ran around the church and then jumped through a window and said, God, the Holy Spirit made me do it. Or there was an outburst of speaking in tongues or something like that. Now, let me say this. I don't say this often enough. I respect Pentecostal churches for their emphasis on the presence of God in their midst. I have a lot of fun making fun of, you know, weird, charismaniac Pentecostalism, you know. I do the voice and all that kind of stuff. But I really do, I respect Pentecostal churches because the people come this way expecting to meet with God. They have a, a heightened sense of expectation. And a lot of times, more conservative church, we lose that. We, we don't want God really to do anything on Sunday morning. We just want to come and listen to the Word, get a cup of Java, and, you know, and go. And stuff. There's not a big heightened expectation, and so I respect them. Now, sadly, it isn't Jesus that some churches emphasize, but the Holy Spirit. And so they're looking for these gifts, and they settle for the gifts. And so the worship is geared towards whipping people up into a frenzy so that they can all start speaking or singing in tongues at the same time and falling over left and right and running around with banners and all of that. And so you could step back and have a visual and say, oh, yeah, something's happening here. God must be present in our midst. Well, I don't want to say he's not, but if he's present, it's their idea of the Holy Spirit and what he does, and it's really not Jesus that is present in that meeting. It's, it's some kind of a strange manifestation of the Spirit that is contrary to what he said he would do in his word oftentimes, and so we've got a, got a problem there. We, you know, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit who comes into our hearts and lives when we're saved and then upon us to, uh, in, in subsequent ways, He only always speaks about Jesus Christ. He has no other message. And so if there's a manifestation of the gift of tongues or a prophecy or anything, a healing, whatever it might be, it's about Jesus. It's not about the Holy Spirit. It's not about His power. It's not even about His power through me. It's something that shows you that Jesus Christ is alive and risen from the dead. And if there's ever a time that you don't see Jesus in the gifts of the Spirit, then it, that's a problem because the Holy Spirit is grieved if we don't understand the giver and we settle for the gift. And so that's what we're talking about. So how do we know if we've met with the Lord? Well, it's not necessarily an outward experience. It could be, but it's not necessarily. Your heart will be touched, though, opened to the things of God. If that sounds mystical, it's not, but it is personal and intimate. You know, we're talking about a real person, Jesus Christ, who's risen from the dead, who loves you in a romantic sense, in a, in a purely romantic sense. He talks to the church at Ephesus and he says, you've left your first love, the love of the betrothal. I love you the way a bridegroom loves his bride and you love me the way a, a bride loved her bridegroom. How do you define romance and that kind of love? I mean, well, you can, I guess. You can look in the dictionary. But the way we define it really is, is by writing poetry. 
by giving flowers, by, you know, uh, symbols and, and these kinds of things. You're always looking for some way to, to, to describe that feeling. It really defies definition. And so it's really hard to uh, define that. It's like the difference between you go to your mailbox and there's a, a stack of letters. Uh, you know, maybe there's something from the water department telling you you shouldn't be watering on Sunday. Not that I had an experience like that, but... And then there's a love letter from your beloved. Man, you just trash all that other stuff. Forget the water company, man. This is my beloved. It's written to me. Once I'm done reading the water company letter, it's in the trash. It's burned. It's, or it's just hung in effigy outside in my front yard. I re- actually, I didn't get a letter like that. How The water cop was driving around this morning, though, so... Tough, you know. 6.30 in the morning, the water cop is out writing down addresses, you know. Hey, nice to see you. But anyway, but the love letter, the love letter, some of you still have love letters. They're well read. They're read over and over and over again. Something, there's something different about them, and that's what we're talking about this morning. So I, I can't really define it for you. I can just describe it and tell you that it's possible closest we can come is the song we sing maybe that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so the idea I have is that I come to church really stressed and struggling. I mean just blown out. So much so that I don't even want to go to church. And then I get there, and when I leave, nothing's really changed. In terms, my finances are the same, and unless somebody gives me a million bucks, which they haven't so far, uh, I still have all the same stresses in my life. In fact, I might have more. Something could be happening right now that I don't even know about. My house could be on fire. I hope it's not because my wife's home. But anyway, <laughs> and that would be bad, you know. But I, I'm serious. I, I don't know what's happening right. But I can leave having having seen Jesus without any of those burdens or those cares knowing that if I get home and my house is burned down and my wife is standing there with, you know, the one thing that's most dear to me, my press pot coffee maker. (laughs) That I can rejoice. Verses 21 through 38. It's this clock thing. It's got me all messed up. But I always have a backup. When you're expecting Jesus to come, heaven is open. And so Jesus came to where John was baptizing in verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus did not need to be baptized for repentance and the remission of sins. He was the perfect, sinless Savior. Why then did he come to be baptized? It was to identify with the human race, to place himself among us so that we would understand he was here to represent us. The Bible teaches in various places that Adam was the first man and that in the Garden of Eden, he represented the entire human race, that he sinned and passes sin down to all of his descendants, including you and I. And then the Bible says that the Lord is from heaven, the second man. 
In other words, he is like Adam was in one sense, in that he has come to represent us. The difference is that Jesus successfully resisted Satan and his temptations, and so he became the leader of a new creation, and all those who receive him as their Savior are born again. Jesus identified as the second Adam, the second man, in order to represent us, and that's brought out in this particular genealogy Luke used. I should mention that this genealogy differs from the one given in Matthew's gospel. There are several explanations for the possible differences. The most common is that Matthew's is the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, who would be the legal father of Jesus, and Luke's would be the genealogy of Mary, the actual line of Jesus. What's important is at the end of verse 38 where it says that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the son of God in the sense that he was made in the image and likeness of God. Jesus was the son of Adam in the sense that he was fully human, only we know from previous studies that he was miraculously conceived and therefore without sin. Calling Jesus the son of Adam, the son of God, cements this principle that Jesus came to represent the entire human race as the second man, the second Adam. His representation is important because just like Adam's sin is imputed to us, so Christ's righteousness can be imputed or given to us. And so you think, hey, I don't like this that Adam represented me. He was a bozo. I'd have done much better. <laughs> Liar. You'd have fallen in an instant. But that, be that as it may, Jesus can come now as the second man, the second Adam, and say, Father, I'll represent the human race. And he does so perfectly without sin, and then he tells the Father, now, Lord, I'll take their sin, all of their sin, punishment and penalty for it, I'll take it, and I'm going to give them in its place my righteousness so that they can go to heaven. That's a good deal. That's salvation by grace through faith alone. And so in verse 23, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Jews considered you a full son of Abraham at age 13. You've probably, you know, are thinking about like the bar mitzvah, which came along later in Jewish history. But it's not that you were considered a man at age 13. You were entered into the privileges of the Jewish synagogue. They didn't consider you mature until you were 30, which I'm four, by the way. Drinking age, driving age, 30. Think of the possibilities there. Save you a lot on your insurance. I'm, I'm for it. Anyway, <clears throat> we've seen the doctrinal importance of the baptism of Jesus. I want to suggest a devotional import. I love this phrase, the heaven was opened. There's just something exciting about it, isn't there? It, people came with expectation and the heaven was opened. Jesus saw it. John saw it. We're not sure if everyone else did, but we see it. What might it mean to see the heaven open to you as we gather together as an assembly of believers? Well, let me suggest just three things based upon the three members of the Trinity. First, Luke is the only gospel writer who mentions that Jesus was praying. Do you know that Jesus prays for you all the time? That he ever lives to make intercession for you in heaven? And add to that that God answers his prayers perfectly? The heaven is open to you to realize that Jesus is praying for you. If Jesus is praying for you, ever living to intercede for you, 
if the Father must answer his prayers, if Jesus died and rose from the dead because he loved you and has called you into his family, is there anything that can happen to you that is outside of the will of God that he can't strengthen you to get through? I can't think of what it is. And even if you disobey, even if you're in sin, I'll flip back to Jonah or some of those guys and you figure out that God is still going to work in your life. He's still going gonna to come after you. And so you need to realize that heaven is open to you. It's, it's as if the sky itself has parted and, and like Stephen, you can see Jesus standing at the right hand of God to receive you. Only in your case, he's praying for you and you can have that confidence. Secondly, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. It's a reminder that he is the giver of the Holy Spirit. Jesus would go on to promise that once he ascended into heaven, he would give the Holy Spirit without measure to his disciples. The figure of the dove reminds you of the gentleness and the intimacy of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You know, in a lot of congregations, the Holy Spirit is like a nuclear bomb that goes off. You ever think about that? Okay, here he comes. You know, and the whole place explodes. The figure, the symbol that this, the Gospels use is the dove. I worked on that. Gentle, intimate relationship. Quiet, whispering, those kinds of things. That's what we think. Now, the heaven is open to you to receive God's Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you can't be a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt the moment you believe. The Bible teaches that you can go on asking for more of God's Holy Spirit in your life and that you can receive Him more and more and more to direct and lead your life, that you can go on being filled with Him. And so you need to know today, whatever you're going through, that heaven is open to you to receive the Holy Spirit. And then third, the Father spoke from heaven approving His Son. The Father declared that He was pleased in retrospect, as he reviewed Jesus 30 years on the earth. All Jesus had done for 30 years was grow in wisdom and stature by being obedient. No miracles. We know that because in the Gospel of John, it says the beginning of his miracles was at the wedding feast of Cana. He did no mighty deeds. He got up in the morning. He obeyed his parents. He did his chores. At some point in his life, his, uh, his stepfather Joseph died, and he took over as the head of the family. But it was just a life there in Nazareth of being a carpenter and going through you know, the religious rites and rituals and all that. Nothing outstanding at all took place in his life from uh, any point of view that we would choose except from God's who said, I am pleased with that life. Now, what does that mean to me and you? It reminds us that God only wants to have fellowship with you, that you were created to just have a relationship with God. True, some people serve God in a greater way. There, there are Billy Grahams and Hudson Taylors and all of these great missionaries and people like that. And then there's a lot of people like you and I who really feel like you know, we're not really accomplishing perhaps very much for God. Okay, fine, that's great. God's not really that interested in what you accomplish for Him. He is interested in you being faithful in what He's asked you to do. But what He's really interested in doing is just have fellowship with you. He just wants to talk with you. He wants to walk with you in the cool of the day like he did with Adam and Eve. That's what it was all about. Another person that, not that he needs that. I mean, he's God. He doesn't need anything. He wants that, and that's even greater. It's greater that he wants it than that he needs it and that he would seek you out every day and say, hey, let's talk. Let's, let's get together. Let me share some things with you about my love for you. 
Let me show you some things from my word. Let me reveal my son to you. God just wanting to have fellowship with you. And so heaven is open to you to converse with the creator of the universe. Think of some of the possible expectations you might have for a moment. You might come to church expecting to learn something new from God's word, and that's good. And then you'd be focused on the message, but maybe you're going to be disappointed if you don't have some new intellectual wisdom, you know. I've heard that before. I'm not getting anything out of the word. Oh, okay. Well, aren't you special? You might come expecting to participate in inspired worship, and so you're really focused in on the music, and you're like, man, those guys haven't done a new song in years. I don't know how many times I've sung that old thing. Okay, well, God bless you. Write some songs and then go somewhere else and sing them. <laughs> you might come expecting to have a need in your life met. And so then you're really kind of, okay, who is it that's going to meet my need today? And you know, if nobody is sensitive enough, <laughs> the church isn't friendly enough, you're going to go home really disappointed and start spreading that rumor around town that people at Calvary Chapel or whatever church are unfriendly, uncaring people because you came with your need. There it was, right on your sleeve. Nobody read it right because that was your expectation that some person was going to reach out to you and take control of your life. Or you might come expecting the person you brought with you to receive Christ and then, you know, the pastor doesn't do an altar call that week. What a bozo perfect opportunity to do an altar call. My friend is here, you know, and I'm punching him in the ribs and stuff, and he doesn't, doesn't ask anybody to receive Christ. He's not doing the work of an evangelist. He's probably not really called to the ministry. I could go on and on. I have, a, I have 20 years worth of these stories. There are as many expectations as there are people, and I add to that the fact that our expectations change from time to time, from week to week, even from minute to minute. You should expect Jesus to come when you come to church. He promised you he'd be there. The message and the music and even the membership are present only to point each and every individual heart to Jesus. When you expect to meet him, all of these other things are put into their proper order and perspective. And when your expectation is to meet him and you remember what he promised you, two or three gathered together, I'm there. Church assembles, I walk in its midst. Even in the Old Testament, and I think it's Malachi, he said, when my, you know, those that I love get together, I listen in on their conversations. And so we're the ones that need to be reminded that the Lord, he's really here. He's already here, doesn't need to really be invited, but we need reminding that we've been in the presence of Jesus Christ. And each of us has to put that into perspective. I need to put it in perspective and think, now, Lord, can I say this without misrepresenting you? Is this going to represent you in a way that people don't see how beautiful you are? And, and in all the other relationships and Sunday school and worship and whatever's happening, is it going to properly represent and reflect Jesus? Granted, we see through a glass darkly. We can't do it perfectly because we're in an imperfect state. But we can strive for it so that when people come, when we come, it's to see Jesus and to show Jesus. So let's pray together. Now, Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to share from your word. 
And it's a good reminder, Lord, that though we study the written word and we will never waver from its importance, knowing that you revere it above your very name, that we do so because it reveals the living word of God, Jesus Christ, who most perfectly represents all the things that we are to know about God, about you. And so, Lord, help me and help us as a fellowship and as individual believers to, to really focus on the person and work of Jesus and to always have that as our theme and, and as our goal. Lord, help us to be romantic about it. I don't even know what that means in one sense and in another sense I do. To be really madly in love with you. To, Lord, want to get up so that we can get into this word from you knowing that it's a love letter from you to us. And, and to want to wear that love publicly the way that uh, we do when we're just crazy in love with somebody. And the people would be touched, Lord, not by our intellect or by our argument or by any external trapping that we might be granted, but only by the, the genuine first love that we have for Jesus Christ. Well, I want to take a few minutes right now while we're in an attitude of prayer, while we're continuing to pray, and just invite you to personally, quietly respond to this message by just spending a few minutes in silent, private prayer, shutting everything else out, and just talking to the Lord. Heaven is open to you right now. It always is, but it is right now. And Jesus is here. He's touching your heart. He's ministering to you. Just let's take a couple of minutes quietly uh, with some music in the background, and, and we'll just wait upon the Lord and just speak to the Lord privately. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and we just close out our service this morning in these next few minutes, I want to talk just to you. You're here. We're blessed that you're here. God has brought you here. He's been revealing himself to you in different ways through the word and just touching your heart. You know you're not a Christian. You never have really committed your life to following Jesus. If that describes you, then I am talking to you right now. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. We want to give you an opportunity to meet Jesus. The Bible says that he's risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, he's alive, and he's more real than anybody else. And he's here in this place by his spirit revealing himself. If you're here and you don't know Jesus or you're not sure if you've ever given your life to Jesus, I want you to raise your hand 
so that we can pray for you. We're not going to have you do anything strange or it's not a call to join the church or anything like that. We just want to give you a chance to reach out and say, yeah, I want to respond to the message by knowing the messenger. I want to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. So is there anybody here this morning as we close? You would want to be saved for eternity, go to heaven rather than hell. Raise your hand so that we can pray for you. There's always one or two or several in any assembly like that. You don't have to do anything. You're probably being attacked right now thinking, well, I'm not ready. I, I need to clean up my life. I've got too much sin. Or as soon as I do this or that, then I'll come back and I'll become religious. We're not talking about that. We're introducing you to a person. That person is Jesus. And then he will clean up your life. You come by grace, his unmerited favor through faith, just believing that he's God, that he died and rose from the dead for you. Is there anyone who would receive Christ this morning? Know him forever. Anyone at all? Praise the Lord. Now, Father, we thank you for the work of your spirit, and we pray that you would go on working in each and every one of our hearts, believers and unbelievers, saved and lost, and that this time that we've spent would be remembered as a time when burdens were lifted and freedoms were realized, commitments were made, Lord, to follow you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We pray it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Let's stand together as we close in our final song. Some of our uh, guys will be down here to pray with you, and uh, don't hesitate even right now to come on down and pray with the guys. Maybe you don't need prayer. You want to come and bless them and pray for them. Guys that are here just to unloose your sandal straps in a figurative sense, although they'd probably do it literally if you'd asked them. Uh, but uh, come on down for prayer. Uh, it can really release some fantastic things in your life to, to meet God in an agreeing prayer with another believer. God bless your Father's Day. Uh, God bless your week in Jesus' name. Amen. I wait for the Lord, my soul is, I wait for the Lord, and I wait for the Lord, my soul is, I wait for the Lord, in His Word, in His Word I place my trust. In His Word I rest In His Word I place my trust For I know I must wait Man shall not live Man shall not live on bread alone but by every word of God, I shall not live. 
I shall not live on bread alone, but by every word I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, I wait for the Lord, and I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, I wait for the Lord. In His Word. In His Word I place my trust. And in His Word I rest. In His Word I place my trust. For I know I must. Wait for the Lord, I must wait. Amen. God bless you today.